Good boy. It's a joy to be here. Thanks to Mike and the team here for the invitation. My brief is to speak on mission here in our local context in the UK and Guildford and Surrey. So shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the privilege of being able to take part in your plans for your world. And I pray this morning that as we reflect on the things you're doing in this nation, that you would put onto each one of our hearts those things you want us to take away, to reflect, to work on, that we could serve you better. Amen. The news is awash with politicians with plans. And those plans are important. They will affect the lives of many people for a number of years. But at the end of the day, those politicians and their plans will disappear. They'll come and go. As the psalmist put it, like a flower of the field, the wind blows over it and it's gone. And its place will know it no more. Yet above it all is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God has a plan too. His plan is to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. And he's chosen to make his church the key to rolling that plan out. And given that church is simply the plural of disciple, that means that you and me are at the heart of this. God's plan depends on us being obedient to the things he's calling us to do. I assume you already know that. The plan is relatively simple. It involves us receiving this gospel, this good news of salvation, the pearl of great price, as Jesus called it. And we're called to receive it, not to hold on and say, Lord Jesus, thank you so much. Thank you for this. I'm going to hold on to it the rest of my days. It's not given it to us as a possession. It's given to us as an entrustment. And the entrustment is that we don't hold on to it, but that we pass it on. It's a kind of relay race. It's an awesome responsibility. And it's a plan that on a global scale is in really exciting and momentous times. The global church is growing incredibly quickly. You've heard Andy Wheeler explain that much more eloquently than I can. But think sub-Saharan Africa that was 3% Christian in 1900, is 63% Christian now. Think China, where there are more people in church this morning than members of the Communist Party. Daniel Mayer did some research in 2012 that suggests that there are 510 new churches and 80,000 new Christians every day across the globe. That is the current experience of Jesus' disciples in his church following his plans. Remember the psalmist call from our reading. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. But in Western Europe in general, and today I'm talking specifically about the UK, things look a little different. The Church of England, in particular, has a crisis, and it's one shared by most 
uh, of the main denominational groups. And the crisis is not declining congregations. Our congregations have been going down nationally at about 1.3% a year for a lot of years now. It's been relatively constant historically. And in a church of 80 people, that means you lose one person a year. It's hardly noticeable. Roll it forward 20 years, you've lost a quarter of your congregation. It's serious, but it's not crisis. Nor is the crisis I'm talking about that we're tearing ourselves apart over issues like women bishops and same-sex relationships. Those things are serious, I'm not belittling them, but they're not the crisis I'm talking about today. The crisis that threatens in many ways our existence as we know it is actually the age of our membership. You see, it's not that people are leaving God's church If they're engaged at 20, they're almost certainly still going to be there when they're 80. But it's that successive generations are not engaging with Jesus Christ through his church. And the only reason we're not declining faster than we are at the moment is that the doctors are keeping us alive longer. And that isn't going to last forever. And when the actuaries crunch the numbers, it looks like this. If that's the size of the church in 2007... If you roll that on, and it's a bit smaller than that now, not hugely, roll that on 50 years to 2057, we're not a bit smaller, but in about 15, 20, maybe 10, 15 years' time, the numbers go off a cliff. And by 2057, the Church of England, if nothing changes, will be 10% of its current size. Now, that's a church unrecognizable from that which we know today. I call it the demographic time bomb. I can show you a church in this diocese that has buried 20% of its congregation in the last 12 months. They're a bit ahead of other people. Now, please don't tell me not to worry. They'll come back when they're older like the rest of us did. They won't because they were never here in the first place. That issue that if people are engaged at 20, 25, they like to be engaged at 70 you've got to keep in your minds. But younger generations are just as spiritually hungry as any generation has ever been. They crave the transcendent, that which is beyond themselves. Why do you think they do so much drugs and sex? They crave fidelity, someone who will be there with them through thick and thin, Why do you think the Friends soap opera was so popular with a group of people, no matter what went on, were there for each other? People crave that. And they crave community and something worth giving their lives to. For some of the young people that are engaged in our churches uh, when they're, they're younger, the problem is not they're not looking at us. The problem is they are. And in so many churches, they look at it and think, well, that doesn't work then. And they wander off. They're looking for something they can give their lives to. In short, not only do they need to know Jesus Christ as much as any generation has ever needed him, but they really want to as well. And they're ready to. Our role is to make sure that they can meet with Jesus in and through his church. And that we have not been particularly good at. Remember the psalmist's call. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. 
Now, our aim is not the institutional survival of the Church of England. In itself, that's neither here nor there, really. The aim is to do all we can, as we were praying a few minutes ago, to enable the Spirit to make disciples of Jesus. Making disciples is our aim. But I happen to think that the Church of England still has a key role in God's plan for the re-evangelization of this nation. So what we need to do is to face the situation as it is, not sugarcoat it, not say it's all fine, but face it head on, look at this demographic time bomb and say, okay, Lord, what do you want us to do about it? See, at one end, you can fall off a tightrope that says, oh, you know, anxiety, oh, it's all going wrong, let's give the keys to the kids in the Sunday school and tell them to lock the doors and turn the lights out when it's finished. Or we can go to the other end and say, oh, it's all all right, it'll be fine. What I'm calling for in the middle is a kind of confident urgency that faces this stuff head on, but then says, do you know what? We can be full of hope because it's not our mission. It's God's mission. And he can do anything if we're obedient. 20 years ago, um, there was a woman in the church that my wife and I were leading at the time who a couple of times a year would disappear for a week or so. And she was actually going to Hong Kong. And everyone in the congregation, apart from us and her husband, thought she was going on a holiday or see relatives or whatever. She was actually going to smuggle Bibles to the underground church in China. Now, she was, well, my wife's five foot nothing. She towered over this lady. She was six and a half stone dripping wet. And she had amazing stories of carrying Bibles on the train into China. But roll that on 20 years and think of China now where there are more Christians worshipping this morning than in the whole of Western Europe, where there's a printing press in Beijing that has just celebrated printing its 125 millionth Bible. Now, I know all the problems for the church in China have not gone, but what a transformation. God's done that in 20 years there. Who had the faith for that 20 years ago? I didn't. But if we look at that now, can we maybe... Grasp the faith that, well, couldn't God do that here? Because we're starting from a bigger base, numerically at least. What could God do in the UK in the next 20 years if we are obedient? Now, if you look at this graph, you'll see the challenge. Up the side is the percentage of the population. Across the bottom is the year people were born, from 1900 through to 1985. Now, that big blue zone at the bottom is people who say, I'm Church of England, okay? So, if you're born 1900 to about 1935, you've got about a 50-50 chance of saying, I'm part of the Church of England. Now, yes, I know some of that is kind of nominal, but they're still saying, this is where I belong. You roll that down to 1985, it's at 5% and still going down, and it's even lower now. Now, compare that with the orange bit. That's the people who say, I've got no religion at all. Quite a small minority many years ago. They're the bit now we call the unchurched. People who've had either no or very, very little contact with the church throughout their whole lives. And you can see now, they are the majority. Coming through the doors of this place, for that group in orange, 
would be as weird as walking into a David Lloyd gym would be for many of you. You walk in through the door, somebody stuffs some leaflets in your hand. Everyone's running around knowing exactly what they're doing. And you think, where do I go now? And then you falter on a little bit. They're very friendly on the door, just like we are. But then they're a bit after the door. You finally find the changing room. Then you go into this room and it's got all these weird machines in it. Now, if you're not used to that, think how odd that would be if nobody would guide you through it. That's how church is for this lot. So you can see the two challenges are these. We need to engage more effectively than we have been with younger generations. And that is not an agenda about young people. That is a whole church agenda. It's an agenda especially for people like me who are in the second half of our lives to say, we have received this pearl. Are we going to pass it on? How can we pass it on? Engaging with young people is not a young person's agenda. It's a whole church agenda, and we're all involved. Even if you're not involved in youth ministry, the young people in this church are looking at you, and they want to know if it works. So your own discipleship has an impact on that. The second bit of the challenge is that we need to engage more effectively than we have been with those who are unchurched. Those for whom coming into a gathering like this is so far off their radar, they haven't rejected it, they just never considered it to be relevant. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. So how do we go about it? Well, let me start with some blocks, and then we'll find our way around them. Blockage one, things that worked in the past, specifically ways of doing church and ways of doing evangelism that worked in the past. In the 1980s, we were doing our evangelism in stadiums. Any of you went to Mission England, 1984? We could fill stadiums by saying, come and hear Billy Graham. But the 1990s, we're into guest services. Church we were in then, we'd regularly get hundreds of people by having a guest service. By the 2000s, it's the heyday of the small groups. Alpha, things like that. Now, I'd say in the last five, six years, most of the really useful evangelism I've done has been one-on-one in the pub. Or just chatting in my study. Now, at one level, it's kind of always been like that. It's about adding one person at a time. And I'm not saying that guest services and inquirers groups are not valuable anymore. They are a key part of our armory. Alpha is still a really valuable and important tool. But if you think just by advertising it, people are going to turn up, forget it. They can be very useful, particularly if those inquirers courses address the, people, the, the questions people are actually asking, rather than the answers we want to give. They, yes, they're useful, but if they're the only game we have, We're missing where most people are at. Now, I could talk for hours about why that's happened. It's multifaceted. But at the heart of it is this. The church used to speak with a voice that was accepted as being relevant on matters spiritual. And that is no longer so amongst most younger people. We no longer have a place in people's minds of spiritual authority. They're happy to have a discussion with us, but as equals not to come and sit under our ministry or to fill our stadiums. And that's not a problem, really. It's a bit like St. Paul in Acts 17, 
where he's reasoning with people in the synagogue and in the marketplace. God's truth does not need special protection or privilege. It's the power to stand for itself if it's lived and spoken with authority. But the blockage is that lots of us have not got our heads around that yet because we know it worked for us. Therefore, why won't it work now? The gospel doesn't change. The way we transmit it has to, always has, from generation to generation. We need to get our heads around the fact that developing relationships with people where we can share honestly and talk about what God's doing in our lives at the same time as we listen to what's going on in their lives, that's more important than putting on flashy events. Simply telling stories of what God has done in our lives is the new stadium event. Blockage number two, our own abilities particularly relevant in Surrey, where we have so many capable people. We will become a more effective church when we start to become utterly dependent upon God rather than our own abilities to do things. Now, I don't speak this from any position of strength. My wife will tell you I am the arch strategist. I will plan and whatever forever. She's the one that keeps pulling me back and says, do you know what? You can't but God can. Introduce you to a thing I call the Nehemiah principle. You know the story, Nehemiah's returned to Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the city spiritually and physically, the walls are going up, and the tribes around don't like it, they're going to attack. So you reach Nehemiah 4 verse 9, they're in real trouble, and he says this, he says, so we prayed to our God, and we posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Not we prayed to our God, and we sat back to see what he'd do. Neither do they say, this is the Surrey way, well, we had a business planning meeting, and we sussed it out, and we put all our things in order. But this beautiful balance of praying and utter dependence upon God and using everything he's given us. It's that balance that we need to restore. Most of our churches, and I don't know about this one because I don't know you well, but most of our churches are too human dependent and not sufficiently God dependent. And if we can learn to redress that balance, to make our prayer meetings a higher priority than our business meetings, God will be able to do even greater things through us. Blockage number three. The old ways still work, sort of. Because this is a wealthy part of the world, it takes about 30 pensioners who are generous and faithful to keep a Sunday club going. They can keep their vicar and their building and all the things they think it needs to be a church. And that's hiding the fact that the demographic time bomb's gonna be going off. Parts of the country that have less wealth and parts of the world that have less wealth are getting more radical already. Those of you who've been involved in change management in your careers will know that the time to change is when you can because you see what's coming, not when you have to because it's too late. We've got a decade to make the radical changes that we need within God's church. But actually the fact that we can just about keep it going could be a block to that. So if there's some of the blocks, what are the ways forward? 
What's God asking us to do? Well, for you here at St. Saviour's, I'm not going to tell you. I can't. That's for you, your leadership, your church councils, your church as a whole to work out under God. What I can do is give you a handful of key things that you may be wise to consider as you work out those plans. The first is so obvious that in a well-taught church like this, I don't actually need to say it, but I'm going to anyway because it's so important. And that is that we need to be praying like smoke for God to empower us. Read Acts chapter 4 as your model. Peter and John released from prison. They'd been warned not to speak about this Jesus again or they'd be in dire trouble, so they have a prayer meeting. Now, I know how that prayer meeting would go in most of our churches. It would go like this. It would say, Lord, protect us. Protect us from our enemies. What did they actually pray? said, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with boldness. We were talking with a Nigerian archbishop a few weeks ago about threats in northeast Nigeria and if we put certain things on our website, would it endanger people? Do you know his answer? Well, they wouldn't mind. It's only another bullet. Do we have that kind of commitment to saying we are going to get the word of God out there? Unless we put prayer and dependence upon God as our first priority, the rest of this stuff becomes a management exercise totally lacking in power. Second thing to consider is that multiplication is more powerful than addition. Now, I'm not talking here about individual people coming to faith. That's one by one, and that's what I'm talking about, one by one, talking with people. This is about churches and congregations. See, I belong to a generation that thinks that everything has to be shiny and professional, and why wouldn't we want it that way? God deserves the best, and the bigger the better. And we love to tell people how many hundred people are in our churches. Do you know what? Most 20 and 30-somethings aren't too worried about that. They want something they can really participate in. Somewhere that they have a voice. It's usually not that important to them if it's a little bit rough around the edges. Provided it's authentic. And authentic is much easier in smaller gatherings where people are at the center. I suggest to you that your work to see the kingdom grow out of this place will grow faster by sending out multiple church plants who themselves will send out church plants in years to come, even planting more congregations here as you've already started to do, than just trying to make what you've got bigger and bigger and bigger. Because that's not the way God's blowing. What will those church plants look like? Well, they will be very varied. Remember, the aim is to make disciples, not to replicate a model of church, which is why we use the term fresh expressions of church. Communities that start from the question, how do we reach this group of people with Jesus and make disciples? Not, how do we do what we're doing here over there? So, what comes in out of these plants and fresh expressions may look very different from where they've come from. That's okay, provided what we're doing is making disciples. Now, already about 10% of the Church of England worships in fresh expressions. Rowan Williams coined the phrase a mixed economy, lots of different things working alongside each other. But that's going to need to grow exponentially 
if we're to meet the challenge of engaging with younger generations and particularly engaging with the unchurched. Multiplication is more powerful than addition. And I know your leadership here understands that. I think this church has the potential to be one of the diocesan catalysts for that to happen in the way Claygate have already started to be with the plant in East Molesley. So how can you join in with that agenda? We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. A third way forward is something about ministry with children and young people. Now you take that very seriously here. You put lots of resources into it, you do great work. I'm not gonna talk about that. Your youth and your children's leaders know much more about it than I do anyway. I want to talk about sharing faith in the home. The church commissioners have been doing a large piece of church growth research since 2011. And of all that research, and it's all been really good stuff, only one thing has shocked me and surprised me. And it's this. European Value Survey asked hundreds of people what things were important for children to learn at home. The things they listed were kindness, politeness, religious faith, tolerance, that kind of stuff. And they asked people to pick out of 11 things their top five that children should learn at home. That's all. Of the 500 people that self-declared as Anglicans, 11% put learning religious faith at home in the top five out of 11 things. It came bottom of the 11 by a long way in the whole group. Okay? So you say, well, maybe people just tick the C of E box. Let's go for the committed ones. Of those people who said Christian faith is central to our lives, still only 36% of them said learning faith at home was important for children. It's like we professionalized this stuff and said that's the church's job. How often are your kids in church on a pie chart? It's about that compared with the rest of it that they're at home. We have got to give our parents and our grandparents more confidence and more ways of being able to engage at home. Think how it works in Jewish families, where the faith is very much a family thing, and you just get together in the synagogue to celebrate that. I put Alice and our children and families advisor in the diocese. Her main project this year is to try and provide you with churches, with tools you can use to help your parents to engage in the home. But I think it's utterly crucial that we get doing that. So start thinking for yourselves, how can we? We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And my fourth and final point is about our welcome of those who do engage. Whoops. I've got a growing body of evidence to say that in most of our churches, newcomers get a good and friendly welcome at the door on Sunday. I've seen your welcome teams here, you're well organized, you put a lot of energy and effort into it. That's great. Bit tricky when you got through there and you got a few minutes to wander around and everybody's chatting and knows each other. That's a tricky time. But hopefully by the time they get to the pew, they're going to get a good welcome there as well. That's good. If they're lucky, they'll get that in most of our churches. If they're really, really fortunate, the person sitting next to them will say, I'm going to have a coffee at the end. Do you want to come with me? That's good. It's a great start. We start to give people the same courtesy we give to those who come into our own homes. But do you know what? People don't want friendly churches. 
They want churches they can make friends in. They want fidelity and community, not politeness. And that is rare. And it's really, really, really hard to break into friendship groups when people know each other. And if you don't believe me, think about your friendship group and how many people in it have been in this church for less than two or three years. That's not wicked or evil, it's human nature. But we've got to break our heads out of that and make a specific effort to say, in Jesus' words, we will invite the stranger in and engage in friendship, not just friendliness. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. So many other things we can talk about. Those four will do for now. So, what is God asking you to take away and ponder and pray and act on today so St. Saviour's can be even better at reaching Guildford than it currently is? Can you be encouraged by the growth of the world church? Do you need to honestly face up to the challenges facing the UK church to engage with younger generations and to engage with the unchurched more effectively? Do you need to lay down what God was doing a decade or more ago and embrace what he's doing now? Do you need to stop relying on your abilities and depend more completely on God? What should your involvement in church planting and fresh expressions of church be? Can you take a small step to share faith more effectively at home? Can you welcome the stranger? God's plan is to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus. The psalmist's call is that we will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And as we do it, the psalmist goes on, then they will put their trust in God and discover the best way to live. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you again for the privilege of joining in with your mission to your world. And I pray for this church, Father, for each one of us here, that you would put on our hearts today those next little steps that we can take so that you can more fully fulfill your mission in this town and this area. Amen.